This morning, we're continuing our series in Revelation, and um, Pastor Lawrence actually preached through Revelation 2 and 3, and in between we had a message from our local uh, missions director in the, in the community, uh, shared a little bit from Revelation 5, but more just a challenge and a call to missions. So we're back in Revelation 4 and 5, and um, oh, let me introduce myself. Some of you might be new. I'm, I'm Danny, one of the pastors here at Waypoint, and... Uh, just glad to worship with you this morning. In this sermon series in Revelation, um, for those of you who don't know much about the Bible, or even if you do, uh, Revelation is the last book in the Bible, and it's got a lot of symbolism and a lot of Im imagery, and some of it can seem confusing. And as a church, we are going through the whole Bible in 10 years, and this is our chance to uh, go through this amazing book that God gave us, and hopefully through this, you can see the beauty of it and begin to, God will really work in your life as you, as you hear his word read. Uh, this is a letter that Jesus gave to John to give to the early church to exhort and encourage them to press on. And uh, to start, I want to read the greeting of the letter again. We read this a couple weeks ago, but it says, the revelation from Jesus Christ. So that's how the book starts. The revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants, God the Father gave him to show his servants what must take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take heart to what is written in it, because the time is near. That is why in this sermon series we are going to read the entire book. So it's long passages that Erica read, but each time we preach, we're going we're gonna to hear the entire book because that's how it was meant to be. So as we study Revelation, my challenge and my prayer is that all of you let it really penetrate your hearts and your minds. Yes, you're going to get hung up on some of the imagery and some of the confusion, and we're here to help you with that and even give you some, each week we might email out some study notes that, that will help, with, help you process it. But this book is meant to be read in the churches, read often, and it's to encourage us and to give us hope and to help us persevere in our present context. So I want to start this sermon with a recent event in my life that might help illustrate the, the text that we're reading this morning. So a couple weeks ago, my son's school sent an email saying parents should check the PowerSchool website for their students' progress report. Any parents out there? My, my son actually said I can do this story, so I'm not gonna embarrass him or anything. Uh, he's in high school. So I, I got to the website, and he has four classes. So I looked at the four grades. First grade, good. Second grade, good. Third grade, good. Fourth grade, 33. And not 33 out of 40, like 33 out of 100. Um, I was shocked. How could his score be this low? I mean, the teachers, the school said, check their email. This is their, where they're at right now. This is like their report card. Back in the day, you got it in the mail or you, you had to, kids had to bring them home and your parents had to sign it. You guys remember that? And kids would like forge, bad kids would forge their sig parents' signature. The honest kids wouldn't. Who are the bad kids? Some of you all are raising your hands, sorry. God forgives you. Just don't, don't do it again. Uh, now, now the kids can't hide because parents have their own login to the uh, power school thing. So all these thoughts are racing through my mind. How could his score be this low? Uh, and then I looked and I noticed he had a bunch of zeros. I was like, man, why did he not do these assignments? 
So my first thought is if he got hundreds for the rest of the semester, maybe he could pull his grade up to a C and pass the class. I was filled with confusion, anger, and frustration. That was my reality. My reality was my son has a 33 and it's gonna take a lot of work just to pass the class. His grade was a 33 and there was nothing I could do about it. So that was my reality. But when my son got home from school that day, I asked him, and he casually said, oh, I did, I did all those assignments. So the next day he spoke with his teacher and his teacher realized she, she forgot to enter the grades into the site. Uh, his actual grade was a 99. So, so at the time, my reality seemed like his grade was a 33. But, and he was in serious trouble. But in actual reality, he did the assignments and the reality at his teacher's desk, which is the reality that mattered, not the reality that I saw on the computer or the reality that I felt, but the real reality was that he had done the assignments and that his teacher, that he had a 99. So I, I tell you this story to illustrate something that I, I believe is happening in Revelation 4 and 5. John and all the Christians in the churches he is writing to are living in one reality, a reality where the churches have internal issues and strife, as we learned in chapters two and three. And in addition to the churches having their own internal struggles, there's persecution and hardship coming from outside the church, particularly they're being persecuted by the Roman government and others in their community. So that's their perceived reality, that it's really bad and is it gonna get any better? But Jesus shows John the actual reality. What is happening in the only place where change can happen? We're the ones who are in control. So you see what Jesus is doing. He's letting John go to the throne room. Hamilton fans, the room where it happened, right? Like, you know, we can, any sports fans, you, you know, we're here watching the game, but they're playing it on the field. So some analogies when it comes to God always fall short, but you get my point. Like the reality where it's happening is the real reality. And, we're, and the reality where we are, we're just hoping that the reality in the real place is what is, gives us the outcome we want. So John, instead of just giving them encouragement, actually gives them a vision and gives us a vision of what's going on in the throne room at that time. I think sometimes we like fiction stories. We like movies. Um, we like movies where the good guy can, you know, beat a bunch of bad guys or to remove us from this reality because maybe there's a parallel universe somewhere where things are better. And I think that we have that in our hearts and we create stories because we need them to help us say like, man, this is really bad. That, that's what comic books are, to be honest. Like this world is, is, is there something better? Is there something that can fix this reality? And I'm so thankful that in our word that God gave us, he peels back and he gives John this vision. They feel defeated, hopeless. Their perceived reality is their grade is a 33. But when you actually see the throne room in heaven, we see victory, we see redemption, we see celebration, we see hope. We see a way, re, way and a reason we can persevere through suffering. And we see joy. We see that it's not as bad as we think it is. 
Jesus wants to show them that their hardships and sufferings do not mean that they are failing, and it does not mean that God is not all-powerful and in complete control and that God doesn't love them. Actually, it's quite the opposite. God is doing something, is doing something, and will do something, and that's what the book of Revelation is about. New Testament scholar Ben Witherington says this, The pastoral purpose of Revelation 4 and 5 is to assure suffering Christians that God the Father and Jesus are sovereign and that the events that the Christians are facing right now in their present are part of a sovereign plan that will culminate in their redemption and the vindication of their faith through the punishment of their persecutors. So just as he let them see the throne room, he also lets us. This, this vision of the throne room should encourage us. Oftentimes when I preach, I was like, this is, I say, this is a really hard passage to preach on. But actually, this is an easy passage to preach on. This is probably the easiest passage in the Bible to preach on because it shows us, it's this beginning of the glimpse of our reality, that God is in control, that God wins, that the lamb who was slaughtered is the lamb who sets us free and gives us hope. So I, I hope that as we move forward this morning, you get that. That's what I want you to walk away with most of all. And like Daniel, Isaiah, and Ezekiel before him, God gives John this glimpse into the actual reality, the throne room of God. And I want to look at right before this. We looked at this passage last week. John and Jesus through John is exhorting the churches. And here's how that section ends, these exhorting letters and encouraging letters to the churches. It says, here I am. This is Jesus speaking. I stand at the door and knock, and he's speaking to believers, people in the church. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give them the right to sit with me on the throne. I want you to remember two words, three words, door, open, and throne. This is what comes right before the section that Erica just read. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So he, he starts it off saying that there's this door that you, that's, you can have direct access to God. And then he says this powerful statement. You will have the right to sit with me on the throne. How many of you have the right to just walk up to Governor Cooper's office and get direct access? Zero, right? Maybe you get access to Pastor Lawrence. That's like most of you, you know. How many of you could just walk to the White House and be like, hey, I want access. I want to sit on the throne, basically. I want to sit at the desk. We just don't have that kind of access. So when Jesus is telling them this, this is in the context of the Roman government. Like he's saying, all of you get to sit at the throne with me. This is a powerful and profound statement that I think we often take for granted. So when we get, enter the door with Jesus and sit with him at the throne, we get a new reality. That's what he promises in chapter 2. Now let's, I mean, it's chapter, at the end of chapter 3. Now, let's move on to the actual vision. I see four things that this new reality brings us that are revealed in the vision of God in Revelation 4 and 5. So the first one is we get worship. The second one is we get salvation. The third one is we get a new song. And the fourth one is we get a renewed purpose to be part of God's family. If you're the note-taking type, I'm gonna repeat these again so each, each time. So the first one, we get, God, we get worship. And for many of us, that might seem a little weird. What do, what do you mean we get worship? 
We get worship, meaning we get God. We get the ability to have direct access to Him, to praise Him, to be with Him, and all we can do in that is worship. So when we look at it, this passage, how do, how do they worship? How do they worship God? And the first thing they do is they worship Him as the I Am, as the one who is and will be forever. And this is, goes back to the name of Yahweh in the Old Testament. When Moses says, when I go to the people, what should I say your name is? And he says, tell them my name is Yahweh. I am. I am. And sometimes that was transliterated into Jehovah. Same word, Jehovah and Yahweh is, is the same word. Just because we didn't know how to pronounce it because Jewish people never said it out loud for thousands of years. So the only way we really learned how to pronounce it, probably Yahweh is the right way to pronounce it because we looked at some literature from other cultures that we found through archaeological digs later. Not we, part like me, Danny, or whatever, but archaeologists, Indiana Jones types found at some point along the way. So we worship God as I am. And for some of us, that might seem weird. Like why, you know, but we are all worshiping people. We were created to worship. You're going to worship something. Every day you wake up and something drives you, something compels you to do the next thing and that's part of worship like you are giving your life to something and ultimately we give our lives to God and then he gives it back to us but what do they worship in this throne room I want us to look at this it says look as I then I looked and saw a door standing open so the doors open remember in the chapter 2 he says you know like knock and I'll open the door and in the same room, uh, and sorry, and the same voice I had heard before speak to me like a trumpet blast, blast. The voice said, come up here and I will show you what will happen after this. And instantly I was in the spirit. So John gets, I don't know if John physically left. You, you guys ever watch the weird cartoons of, uh, what's it called? Christmas, Christmas Carol? You know, the Mickey one or the other one. Some of them are kind of creepy. Like when they get to, you know, he like physically his body goes and he sees like his past and stuff. I don't know if John was just dreaming or if he physically went. I mean, the Bible doesn't say, but it just says that he was able to see the throne room, a real vision of the throne room, similar to Isaiah and, and Ezekiel has in Ezekiel 1. And the one sitting on the throne, the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like Jasper. And I don't even know how to say this word, carnelian. I don't know. I guess some kind of brilliant stone. And the glow of the emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. And if we, if we hear about rainbows, we think about Genesis 9, right? And Noah and the rainbow that God puts in the sky to say, I'll never again judge the earth. But the rainbow is actually a bow. And it's not pointing toward the earth. It's pointing toward heaven. It's a beautiful symbol of mercy and God's refraining from judgment to give his people mercy. But then there's this rainbow, this, this throne. And if we look at Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel does, gets to do the same thing John did. If you go back and read Ezekiel 1, you'll see imagery very similar to what we see in, in Revelation three and, I mean 4 and 5. Here's what Ezekiel says about the appearance of God when he sees him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, on a rainy day so was the radiance around him. God's judgment, mercy, and splendor were all there in his presence. And we, 
and all Ezekiel could do when he was in his presence is worship him. Have any of you ever gone to something that you loved? I don't know. For me, it's kind of college football. Like when I go to the big game, the Iron Bowl, and Auburn's going to win, you know, we lost yesterday, but... You know, it's, it's like there's just some, I anticipate it and I get there and there's, and it's, for me, it's just powerful. And all of us have this thing. And some of us, unfortunately, maybe, maybe you don't, but all of us have something that this beautiful thing that we just want to hear or see over and over and over again. And that's what it says the throne is like. And it talks about these 24 elders who surround him. And this is God the Father. And I would say, the number 24 is symbolic. It probably represents the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes. Um, and we'll see that numbers keep coming up in Revelation. But there's this beautiful vision, and there's the sevenfold Spirit of God, which again, I would say the number seven just means that it's the full Spirit of God is there. And around this throne, there's four living beings, which are similar to Ezekiel 1. And these four living beings are weird. They got eyes on the front and back and they look kind of like a lion. And I would say those four things represent the, the entirety of creation. We don't really know, you know, he's, he's giving a vision, but is it literal or he's, he's telling us like, like Ezekiel, you know, there's these four things and those, these four things represent all of the created order, all of the beauty of God's creation. And then at the end, we hear this praise that they sing. And day and night, these 24, I mean, these four living beings just say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was and who is and who is still to come. God is worthy of that consistent praise forever. He is worthy of that because that's who he is. And that's our reality is that the God of the universe is here, but that our reality isn't that that's distant from us. Our reality is that he invites us to sit at the throne with him. Now, how is that going to happen? We'll see that later with the lamb. The next thing they worship him as creator. It says, whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before him and say, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and they exist before you created what you pleased. Now, for some of you, this, you, you may feel distant from this, and you're like, that sounds good, but it's hard for me to rally around that. But I, I want you to think, if, if I were to say right now, you could... You could meet the one person you wanted to meet or do the one thing you wanted to do for free. I mean, it could happen tomorrow. You could get it. You know, what would that be? Like the thing you've been wanting to do. It could be, I need a million dollars. It could be whatever. Like what John is trying to show us here is, is that that's what God is. The thing that we need the most because he's the creator. He's the source. He's the one that we look back to. I, all of us like to brag about something when we like a movie or when we like our school or when we like an experience we, we like to point back to that thing and what this worship does is just like it reorients us to point us back to the thing the thing that created us the God of the universe who loved us so they worship him as creator and then finally they worship him as the lamb and before I move on to this point I want to put on my teacher hat 
and just acknowledge that Revelation is filled with imagery similar to Daniel and Ezekiel and symbolic uses of numbers like we see in many other places in the Bible. So I'm going to read this really cool thing from Richard Bauckham. He's a Revelation New Testament scholar. And I, I just want you to kind of see some of the ways that Jesus gives John the vision and, and they're using numbers. Listen to this. The word lamb, referring to Christ, occurs 28 times, 4 times 7, 28 times in Revelation. Seven of these are coupling God the Father and the Lamb together. Four is after seven, the symbolic number most commonly and consistently used in Revelation. As seven is the number of completeness, four is the number for the world. And with its four corners, chapter 7 and chapter 20, and its four divisions, chapter 5 and chapter 14. Later in the letter, the first four judgments in each of the series of seven affect the world. The seven times four occurrences of the Lamb therefore indicate the worldwide scope of His complete victory. Isn't that cool? This corresponds to the fact that the phrase by which John designates all the nations of the world is fourfold, peoples and tribes and languages and nations. The phrase varies each time it occurs, but it's always fourfold and always occurs seven times. Its first occurrence establishes its connection with the Lamb's victory in verse 5. There's a ton of that in this book. And now people have gotten carried away in history and, and probably taken the symbolism too far. When I was a kid, you know, there was all kinds of theories that the Antichrist was different people, Osama bin Laden or, or um, you know, Saddam Hussein. And, and, and we're not here to do that at Waypoint. We just want to teach the text as it reveals itself. But the number seven, the number 24 are important because the lamb is important. And what do we get when we get the lamb? We get salvation. Better put, we get the suffering service that brings us salvation by ransoming us through his blood. Revelation 5 is a beautiful picture. It says, Then I saw the scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing inside and outside of the scroll. The scroll was filled. And then I saw a strong angel. Kids out there, I know I'm probably boring you to death, but the kids, I want you to think about Something that a strong angel, he couldn't even open the scroll. There was something about this scroll that he couldn't open it. Who is worthy? Who can open this scroll? Who has the power and the ability to open this scroll? But no one could open it. No one anywhere could do it. No one was able to open it. No one was able to read it. And then John, seeing this, begins to weep bitterly because there's no one strong enough or able to open the scroll. But one of the 24 elders said to John, stop weeping, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scrolls and its seven seals. Now we don't know how heaven and earth parallels, how time works on heaven and how time works on earth, but this is definitely a vision that happens after Christ has died on the cross. The Passover lamb has bled. You know, Jesus dies on the Passover. So somehow John is getting a vision of what happened, what transpired in heaven that will give him hope. And he says he's won the victory. He's worthy to open the scrolls and its seven seals. Now it shifts. He was the lion, the most powerful of all animals. And now who is he? 
How does he open the scroll? As the lamb. It says, Then I saw a lamb that looked and had been slaughtered, a lamb that's beaten and, and broken. But it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings among the 24 elders. And it says it had seven horns and seven eyes. He had seven horns and seven eyes. And I think this is symbolic. I don't think Jesus all of a sudden got seven horns and seven eyes. Um, I think it's symbolic use of seven saying that, you know, using the term horn and eyes, which are Old Testament terminology, meaning that he's in complete control. And he had the sevenfold spirit, which I mean the completeness of the Holy Spirit that is sent out to every part of the earth. Meaning Jesus' victory, the Lamb's victory, goes out, sees and conquers everything, everywhere. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. This is what happened. This is the picture. This is the beautiful thing. And each had a harp, and they had gold bowls filled with incense, which are what? The prayers of the people. Think about that. Your prayers, the prayers that we pray, the prayer that we prayed earlier, the prayer that we're going to pray as a group, and the prayers you're going to pray individually are part of the incense that fills heaven. So we get salvation through the Lamb. If you don't know who Jesus is, if you don't know what this salvation is, if, if you're, you've been out of church for a long time, we want you to, to know. Talk to the person who brought you. Grab one of the people with a, a name tag, one of our welcome team. Grab me or one of our other pastors. We want you to understand what it means to be forgiven and what it means to be part of this new creation that God's given us and what it means to be part to be forgiven and to have salvation by the lamb but what do we get at we get the lamb so we have the salvation so what do we do it says and then they sang a new song with these words we get this is number three we get a new song it says you for you are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it for you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed many people for God from every tribe language and people and nation and you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests the priesthood isn't what the Roman government thinks it is it isn't what the Jewish people think it is the priesthood we become a kingdom of priests we all represent Christ on earth we all can be his ambassadors for God and they will reign on earth so we get this new song and we sing together and we sing to remember, we sing to worship. Singing together unites us. How many of you are college basketball fans? We're in North Carolina, so I always have to start. I grew up in Florida and Georgia, so I have to start with college football. But here I start with college basketball. Do, do you guys do chants in unison? Are there chants that are done in unison? When they play a certain song, I don't know how long, 10 years ago, the, the Red Sox started singing Sweet Caroline, and, uh, some some groups sing living on a prayer and everyone sings it together at florida i think they sing tom petty's won't back down right every every school either they have their fight song or they have a chant or a cheer or they sing a song and they all sing it together in unison they're worshiping something they're worshiping a team probably the coolest thing is in soccer like the english premier league they they chant they they unfortunately i'd say they worship it they shouldn't like we worship things here even at you know, Brazil, the Brazil soccer team kind of chants the whole time. I mean, the crowd. 
as their team is, even when their team's losing. You know, it's, it's amazing. They think that their cheers will inspire the team. They're unified in singing. And we get a new song. That's why we sing here. If you're like me and you don't have a good voice and you can't sing in tune, I, I look forward to the day in the new heaven and the new earth when I, when I can sing perfectly with all of you and I don't wreck it. But, but the good news is, is we can make a joyful noise now. And we're called to do that. So we get a new song. I preached a whole sermon on this um, in the Song of Solomon series, if you want to go back and hear about songs and, and, and how God uses songs. But I, I want to give an, tell you a story about singing to God. So when I lived overseas, one time I was an exchange student, and uh, we had shared with some, some students, and a couple of them, one kid actually already became a, was a Christian, but he didn't have any fellowship. So he, he knew we were, he, he met me and my roommate, and he's like, oh, you guys are Christians. Teach me about God. So we started teaching him, and then he wanted to gather some other new Christians that were on campus. The school, like, it was forbidden for Christians to, get, to gather. And um, my friend played the guitar, my roommate from America, he, the other exchange student with me, he could play the guitar. So he taught this local guy a couple songs in English, some praise songs. So they had their first gathering. And uh, it's funny, Eric and, Erica and I went to that gathering. We weren't even dating at the time. And this is one of the first times we kind of hung out and we, we went to help this group kind of have a Bible study. That was basically what it was. They were having a Bible study knowing that it would be forbidden on campus. So we went off campus and the guy, the, the, the excited new Christian wanted to sing the four new songs that he had learned, even though they were in English, they weren't even in the original language that, I mean, the language that they all spoke. And he wanted me and Erica to come to kind of give a little devotion for the, you know, to the group. But we knew that because a Christian gathering in this country was forbidden, we were like, we're, normally we wouldn't sing out loud. But he's like, you know what? It says in the Bible I'm supposed to sing out loud. So he just did it. So he even had a song prepared in his original language. And he could not not sing. So you know what we did? We said, oh well, if we get arrested, we're going to get arrested because we're going to sing praises to God. And that group became leaders in a house church movement when they graduated. And I'm glad we didn't stop them because of fear. I'm glad we let them sing. So let's be people who sing together and let's praise God that we live in a place where we don't have to hide in a room and huddle up in a prison somewhere like many of our brothers and sisters do. We have the opportunity to sing, so let's sing and praise God with our voices. And the final thing today that I want us to reflect on is we get a renewed purpose because we get to be part of God's family. And some of you might have a really great family, and that's, that's great, but many of us don't. But either way, we get to be part of this renewed family and this is our greatest longing, to be truly human again, to have right fellowship with God and right fellowship with others. One thing that COVID has taught me is when there's a disagreement over something that's not really in the Bible as black or white, it's just not there, people can really hurt, not be mad at each other and, and, and not like each other because of some disagreement over something. And I think the vision that we see in, in Revelation 5 is 
is as God works in the community and ultimately in, in heaven, God will make it where we can be just delight in each other and all of us will be made right in Christ and all of our shortcomings will come together. Remember, this, this section comes right after Jesus gives them a bunch of rebukes for how they're not loving each other and they're forgetting their first love in chapters four, I mean, uh, 2 and 3 as he's talking to each of the seven churches that he exhorts. So we get this renewed purpose. We get to be part of God's family. I'm just going to read it. It says, Then I looked again and heard the voices of thousands and of millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. This is what he addressed earlier, those beings. And they sang in a mighty chorus, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. The Roman government and the Jewish leaders said, we're the ones who are kind of in control of all of this. But by peeling back and letting them have this vision of heaven, John is, Jesus, through John, is showing them that God is in complete control. That what's happening in Rome, yeah, it's, it's, it's important, but it's not the final, it doesn't have the final say. This is the final say. That there's a song in heaven and there's victory and there's riches and power. How many of you want power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, blessing? That's what the Lamb gets, but that's what the Lamb gives to us. Remember, we get to sit with Him on His throne. We get to reign with Christ. And then John goes on. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea, and they sang. Maybe this is why C.S. Lewis thinks animals can talk at Narnia. It seems like the creatures are singing too. I don't know. Don't, don't quote me on that, but it's pretty cool. Blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever. God the Father, God the Son. And remember, we get to be part of that. We get to be in that. He invited us to the throne with Him in chapter 2. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the Lamb. This is our reality. Our reality is that is glory and honor and strength and wisdom and riches and blessing and not health and wealth. Not you do this. Actually, the more they did this, the more they might suffer on earth. Because the reality here is, is, is perseverance and suffering. It's not like you, you just say, okay, God, I'm going to surrender my life to you. And then all of a sudden you get all this, you get everything you want. No, you get God. And that's all that we need. That's what we ultimately want. And we get the body of Christ together. Richard Bauckham, who I quoted earlier, probably the most profound of all the New Testament scholars, his, his one little book on Revelation, it's, it says this. He says, The role of Christ in Revelation is to establish God's kingdom on earth. In the words of Revelation eleven fifteen, to turn the kingdom of the world, currently ruled by evil, into the kingdom of our Lord and His Messiah. This is both the work of salvation and of judgment. So what John is doing here, and he does it for the rest of the book, he's going to have all these different visions of what he sees in heaven. But he doesn't start off, he starts off with the victory. He starts off by showing us the reality in heaven and what happened at the throne room when Jesus won the victory for us. And then he continues on to show us that it, the persecutions and the trials and the strife that we face 
will be made right because we can look back to the victory of the Lamb and the hope that we have in Him. And through the vision of the throne room, Jesus allows us to see through John this revelation unfolding and that God is going to give us sorry I lost my place but God is going to give us what we need and the brokenness and the evil and the sin that exists in this world he's working in it and through it and through us and calling us to make people from every nation tongue and tribe who can come together and must worship and sing the new song that this is our reality this gathering here isn't insignificant this gathering here is the most significant thing we are doing here right now what's happening in heaven you may think this isn't doesn't sound as great but this is the gathering of the saints whenever we gather to sing and to worship and to hear the word proclaimed and to pray we are giving god glory and we are entering into this court of heaven because our reality is not just what we see and are experiencing here god through jesus the lion and the lamb sorry in god through jesus the lion and the lamb we can truly pray as the lord prayers lord's prayer says your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven that is what revelation 4 and 5 is about and we can live in a new hope that god is on his throne and he is making all things new in us and through us i'm going to read um, one passage from second corinthians i want to end with this Paul says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let's pray and prepare our hearts for communion. God, we thank you for your throne. That we can enter the throne of grace with confidence because of the blood of the Lamb. I pray if anybody here doesn't know what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be saved by the blood of the Lamb, to be part of a new family and a new community, to have real hope and real just joy because we're joining together with God the Creator and his purpose for us. God, if anybody here does not know Jesus, that today would be the day that they would ask someone and say, I want to know who Jesus is. Move in their heart. And for all of us who do know you, God, may we be people with a new song. And we remember that the Lamb is worthy. And in that worthiness of the Lamb, we become worthy to sing a new song and to be your people. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.